Hello and welcome to the Fresh Start Podcast, a show where we share success principles, explore the stories, experiences, and journey of real people in order to provide newcomers with strategies to succeed. My name is David Ojeinka. On today's episode, I'll be talking to Tomi Belei. Tomi earned a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and International Development Studies from University of New Brunswick. Tomi credits a nose to the grindstone mentality to her upbringing in Lagos, Nigeria. Since moving to Canada, she has pursued interest in education, technology, and entrepreneurship. This interest led her to launch MFMG Cosmetics, a leading direct-to-consumer beauty brand tailored to multi-ethnic communities. In addition to her e-commerce business, she also manages Ontario operations at Lighthouse Labs, a leading software education institution. A passion for advancing diversity and inclusion in tech and entrepreneurship communities has led her to recognition by the Globe and Mail, the New York Times, BuzzFeed, Flair, Glamour, and more as a young leader in the Toronto tech ecosystem. Please help me in welcoming Tomi Beleyi. I'm so excited to have you on the show today, Tommy. I'm excited too. Like I said, like that's the first time, one of the first few times um, uh, someone has pronounced my last name very correctly. So it's refreshing to hear as opposed to the other variations of it I get. So thanks for that warm and lovely introduction. <laughs> Thank you. To start our conversation today, you know, while I was reading your bio, the interesting thing um, that I saw was that you've pursued interest in education, technology, and entrepreneurship. Can you please tell us more about that? Okay, so I guess let me start from the beginning, kind of how I got into tech. Uh, mm-hmm. So my first job out of, so I came to Canada as an international student, um, didn't really have a lot of context for Canada, to be honest. I just knew I wanted to study abroad because that was what, at my school at the time, that was what people around me were doing. So I was just like, okay, Canada, that's another box I'm going to take. So my first job actually out of um, university was at Target Canada. So um, they actually don't exist anymore in Canada, but it was a very exciting project because I got to help them open up their stores all over Canada, but specifically the Eastern provinces. So like Brunswick, Nova Scotia, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, after about a year and a bit there, Um, we had already opened the store, I kind of realized that I did want to move to the Toronto area, kind of being an urban center, you know, my few visits to Toronto, seeing the hustle and the bustle of the city, that was something I really wanted to be part of. So that kind of spurred my move to Toronto. And while here, I saw kind of the growing tech ecosystem and did notice there were in a lot of Black people, specifically Black women at that time that were visibly part of those like um, tech teams, tech organizations. Um, I just like started attending events like TechTO and I knew that was where sort of the future of work was going. And so um, in, in line with all of that, I kind of geared my career towards um, account executive role in sales for an ed tech company here in, um, in Toronto. And that's kind of how I got started in technology specifically. Uh, with entrepreneurship, I'd always had like this um, interest 
in it. Like I was always on like the Reddit groups and the WhatsApp groups and just trying to learn about, you know, how do you start your own business? And it's a longer story, which we'll get into later, but I ended up starting my own beauty company on the Shopify platform. Wow, that's impressive. You mentioned that you came to Toronto because you love the life here in Toronto. But did you just decide that, you know, I'm just going to quit my job where I am right now and I'm just going to go to another place that I don't know anyone and just start a new life there? Yes, that's exactly what actually happened because um, I think where I went in terms of like, um, you know, starting getting an education where I was living was great. I was living in Fredericton, New Brunswick. I think as a student, um, there were minimal sort of distractions there. It was a really good experience from that point of view. But as I was becoming a young professional, I just knew that there were opportunities in Toronto I was likely missing out on because I was in a smaller community. I mean, that's not always the case for everyone, but I just like tech was of interest to me and different things. So I literally was like, I was chatting. I wouldn't advise this to be honest. I would ask other people to prepare their plan, but I was just chatting with my supervisor at the time. And um, as you know, like Target Canada did have a lot of um, logistical challenges and I could just already see the handwriting on the wall that some of the challenges the company was having were like way beyond what myself as like at that time my title was executive team leader was in any capacity going to solve so I was having a chat with my supervisor and we were talking about projects I was like actually I don't think I'm going to be here next week for the project because I'm moving to Toronto and that was and like from there, I was like, well, I just said this out loud, so I got to start executing the plan. So it was definitely not a well thought out decision, but um, I had been to the city a number of times. I had some sort of, I didn't have a strong threat network, but I had some contacts like from Nigeria around. So I just had the mindset of if I knew a couple of people there doing it and being able to establish themselves, I could figure it out too. And I was also young. It was also youthful exuberance, honestly. Wow. But were you scared when you were moving? Yes, I was terrified because like it was something as small as driving, even though I grew up in Lagos now and, you know, everyone talks about the, you know, ninja sharpness and all of that. I've been living in a very small community for like five plus years. Um, the population of Ferdinand is like 80,000 at most and that's when students are even around i'll have to refresh check your stats later but it's kind of around there so it was definitely extremely scary to think about that even driving like when i got in the 400 series and there's like four lanes four i was like oh my god like what am i doing <laughs> i was I was definitely very scared. I was scared I was making a mistake. And my family, I didn't move with my family, right? They're all, my parents, my brothers are all back in Nigeria. So there was no, like it was either survive or bust. Like I had to figure it out. So mm -hmm. I was definitely very scared. And how long did it take you to integrate, like make new friends, get a job, start a new life in, in Toronto? How long did it take you to do that? How long? So I was very focused on the job first. So to be fair, it wasn't, I didn't have like zero help. I reached out. Yeah. At those points when you're making these kind of moves, you kind of have to swallow your pride at points, you know, reach out to people that you haven't spoken to in years or like mm -hmm. you're not maybe so close to, but I was lucky. I had a cousin of my mom's that I knew lived here and we used to talk you know once in a while. She was always kind of saying, you know, we need to move. She always used to joke. I don't know how many of your 
followers understand Yoruba, but she always say like, you need to live the abule you're living in, which means like village. She was just like making a joke that I was living in a very small town. So at least she was available. So I stayed with her for about two months, I believe. Cause you know, of course, when you're, you know, crashing on someone's couch, like you're trying to get out of there as soon as possible. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, I stayed there for about two months, but my focus wasn't honestly around friends. It was just like, I need a job. Like I need to sustain myself. I need to start, you know, I came here to, in order to make a switch. I had a specific amount of savings set up. So the biggest thing was just like getting that job. So that was my focus. I don't think I did anything else, but job search for a while. Yeah. All right. So let's go to that job search. Now you studied international development studies and psychology. Mm-hmm. And you, you said earlier that you wanted to become an account executive for tech company. How did you relate what you studied in the university to landing this job at Lighthouse Labs? And how long did it take you to get a job when you relocated to Toronto? Okay, so there's, it's kind of like two answers in a way because I was planning for my job even while I was in my undergrad position. So mm-hmm. I obviously knew like with a Bachelor of Arts versus some of my friends that were in business or engineering that I'll have a different set of obstacles in front of me in terms of translating my experience into a job. And to be fully honest with you, David, my plan was actually to go to law school. So I built my whole undergrad experience towards that, like trying to make sure I had the right curricular activities and all this stuff. But during the process, I actually realized that wasn't something like I wanted to do. I was also really focused on immigration and I wanted to get all those things a lot quicker than that process would have like created for me. So I started working on my job experience even while in undergrad. So I started, I was working for the university, working for their international um, student's office. I was working for like the student newspaper. I was working for, at some point I had a job at Lo Chateau as well, because one of the things I realized once I started school here was, oh, all these other students had been working I never had a job in Nigeria. It's just not something that um, the people I was around were doing. So immediately I started, I realized I was like, oh, I'm going to be job searching three, four years from now with all these people that have work experience of some kind already. So I felt behind, I needed to catch up. So a big part of me translating my degree into a job was I started working in undergrad and started doing jobs that in the business space and started to build experience and um, kind of things to put on my resume and contacts. So by the time I applied for a job, I already had very specific experience that was transferable. So I think my first job in out of university, which was a business job, which was actually a huge, a lot of accountability for a very young uh, woman at the time, which was like actually opening stores, hiring people. Like I hired like hundreds of people because it was a complete, you know, staffing um, project and complete launch of a new brand in the country. So, but they didn't hire me because of my degree. They hired me because of my experience. 
Okay. And you said that you realized law wasn't what you wanted. At what point did you realize that? And how did you have that conversation with your parents that, hey, dad, mom, I want to head in a different direction now? Because we grew up in an environment where it's tough to have that conversation. Unlike this part of the world where children can easily tell their parents, you know what, I don't want to do that. And parents don't really have control over that. I had it easy a little bit because I would say my mom in particular is somewhat unique in that she was never one of those parents that was like, oh, my child has to read, it has to be an engineer, my child has to be a doctor, a lawyer. She was always, so she was actually, um, earlier in her career, she did teach, so she was always kind of more flexible in that way. Like, even when, like, way back in high school, I had a, we, I, I don't think they should do this anymore in Nigerian schools, but anyway, they split people off into, like, art, science, and commerce, mm-hmm. and I had more interest in, like, art classes, and there was a teacher that actually told my mom, like, oh, you're wasting this girl's intellect capabilities by having her do this my mom was like no that's it is I would be wasting her capabilities if I'm forcing her to do something she's not interested in so it was a pretty easy conversation in that sense more of the struggle had to do with me and my own perceptions of what success means and my own um, perceptions around based on our culture of what like a good immigrant job is going to be. So most of the struggle was with myself because my parents were pretty much like, you know, you've been, you know, it's kind of those things like I'd been in university for four plus years and they hadn't heard any bad news. So they were kind of like, well, we trust you to make the best decision. Knowing that you uprooted yourself from New Brunswick and came to Toronto, if you can take us through the journey of how you eventually landed your role. Okay, it took me three months to get my first job. So I moved here around like um, late August, early September, and I had my offer for my new job by November. So it took me about three months. And like I said to you earlier, I didn't do much of a focus on that job search. At first, I was trying to job search from New Brunswick because I wanted that security, right, of uh, let me move and have the job ready, right? Mm -hmm. And obviously, I quickly found out that that wasn't working. Like, people don't want to interview you if they see a postal code that's foreign. They're kind of like, you know, I don't know, whatever reason, interviewers, it just wasn't clicking. So that was when I I just decided, I was like, I have to sell everything, you know, take my car down, do the full drive and move. So that was one of my first big learnings of I couldn't, I wasn't able to successfully do the job search from my location. I had Mm -hmm. to move. Um, So that was one of the first things. And then once I was here, I was going to networking events. I was very active on LinkedIn at the time, which this was the wildest, like four, I don't know, then four, six years ago now. So LinkedIn is like a lot more popular now, but it was still, it was popular then, but it was still, I don't think it was something a lot of new grads were using to be quite honest. So I think that helped me a lot because I was leveraging LinkedIn very, very heavily at a time where it was still sort of like, it was popular, but not the same reach that it has now. Mm-hmm. I was cold, doing a lot of cold emailing to recruiters. Um, I was just hitting, I was definitely just hitting the pavement, if you will, like they say. Mm-hmm. 
Was that what translated to a job or was it just you applying on Indeed? How did the job eventually happen? Right. I didn't use Indeed at all. I actually don't use, in, I didn't use Indeed at all in my job search. What I was doing with LinkedIn specifically was there is, I'm trying to remember the name now. There is this, um, um, like I would call her an HR influencer, HR blur blogger that I follow her name. Her name is Liz Ryan. She helped me a lot to build my confidence as a job seeker. And back then she used to promote something called the pain letter. So the idea is that instead of you just, you know, applying to a ton of jobs, try and figure out who is the hiring manager and what is the pain point that they have. So I really leveraged a lot of her resources. Um, Liz Ryan, the human workplace, I believe is like her platform. And so what my focus was trying to figure out, you know, who the hiring manager was directly send them my cover letter and resume and go from there. So my job search, I was applying to a lot of jobs, but I wasn't just like spraying and praying, if you will. It was a very targeted job search where I would, you know, try and find some, the hiring manager directly, send them a specific cover letter based on where I, you know, kind of determine their pain points might be, and I'll go from there. And I actually found my first job in Toronto on LinkedIn. Okay. So you used the same approach. You saw the job posting, looked for the hiring manager, reached out to the hiring manager, and then told you to apply. Yeah, kind of that kind of thing. Sometimes I may have already applied and then mm -hmm. try to, if I can't find that hiring manager, sometimes I'll reach out, I'll reach out to like a peer or somebody, sometimes I'll try and leverage like alumni networks, someone that may be graduating graduated from my school and was working at the company. So I was using both peers because sometimes you might not successfully find a hiring, direct hiring manager. Um, so I would reach out to peers who could then refer me. So that was kind of my, my approach to the job search. Now, some people may be thinking, okay, you were living in New Brunswick. You decided to relocate to Toronto. It was easy for you because you have parental support. Maybe your parents are still sending you money from Nigeria Absolutely. or you had, <laughs> and also because you had an aunt in Toronto, but they may be saying, okay, I'm far away in Manitoba. I also want to come to Toronto, but I don't have anyone in Toronto. What advice do you have for them? Would you say that just go meet your manager, tell them I'm quitting and come to Toronto? So like I said, that approach I took, I wouldn't advise somebody else to do it, right? Like <laughs> I was very young at the time. And, but sometimes, you know, that naivety can help because I didn't, failure was not an option, especially because to your point about parental support, that wasn't happening for me anymore. Mm -hmm. um, like right from university, like my parents aren't like wealthy or anything. They just wanted to give me a great opportunity. Yeah, my parents were kind of more of, they paid my tuition and I had to figure out the rest myself. It's not because they were mean or something, but like I have other siblings, right? That they were mm -hmm. paying their fees for as well. Mm -hmm. And they had other like obligations and things to sort out. So I kind of had to figure it out very quickly. I remember, I think it was like the first two months they were supporting me and they kind of had to have that tough conversation of, hey, listen, <laughs> here's the situation, girl. You're going to have to sort yourself out. Oh, you're low why, you know, which yeah. is like on your own. Anyway, so I think from that mindset though, because I was I was actually really young, like like 17 going on 18 or something, because of that mindset that it was very sink or swim, I always kind of had that mentality 
all throughout my undergraduate experience to now. So in terms of that person, I was lucky. And they always say, you know, you have to recognize your own privileges as well. Having that person that at least I could land in their home. I had like some kind of, you know, support and embedded in my arrival, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. just like I had to come and start searching for a place. My advice would be, you can start, um, you know, a search for a place online, even leveraging LinkedIn, like I said, like lots of, or even networks that we have now, like the Black Professional and Tech Network, you could find roommates to start with, right? And in this day and age of Airbnb, like that could be a short-term plan for three to four months. I'll also advise to save up. Don't do what I do and just quit on the spot. Probably um, save up a bit before you you make the move. Like I said, I tried to look locally. It didn't work for me. I do think it's important to just like, you have to be in the city that you're trying to find the job in, to be quite honest. So my advice would be save up for, you know, six months. I think that's usually the advice um, in general, like emergency savings for about six months, reach out to professional networks where you can find like roommates, your other young professionals that you could split rent with, or, you know, look at a short-term plan for Airbnb while you're looking and then transition to your own place later. That would be my advice. And then the other advice I wish I had taken then or had mm-hmm. known then is definitely don't just accept the- <laughs> Even if it's a place you want to work, don't just accept the first offer, negotiate. I didn't do that. And like, that was a big mistake with my um, first offer I got in Toronto. So let's go to your business, the MFMG. How did you get started? I know you said you were attending Tetio, you're attending a lot of events. How did you get started with MFMG? And where did you find the confidence to keep going regardless of the challenges that you might be faced with. So MFMG is interesting because again, similar to my just like upping and moving here to Toronto, it also wasn't one of those things that I was like, okay, I'm going to save this amount of money. This is the business I want to do. This is the launch plan and this is it. It was a lot messier than that. Um, I, you know, while I'd finally kind of settled down, because I feel like the first few months of moving here, I was just like, you know, just trying to make sure I, you know, got everything together and made sure I had a source of income. Once I was settled into my job, I started to kind of um, join some of these groups. Like there's this group for Radical Personal Finance Canada, because I was always big on like, you know, um, wanting to do well for myself financially, to be quite frank. So I was looking at resources around that. And that's when I started hearing all the terms side hustle. There was also this blog I love called Money After Graduation. Um, It's by this um, MBA called Bridget Casey. So at that time, she just started this blog about how to be like, as a millennial, be financially savvy and all that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of conversation about side hustles and e-commerce and all of that. So that was the first time I started even looking closer into like the Instagram kind of Shopify e-commerce connections because I didn't really understand that space. And um, I still happened to realize that I started to spend more time on Instagram, like (laughs) a lot of wasted time, to be honest. I started to realize I was just... um, curious why a lot of um, Black women, I felt weren't getting as much um, 
amplification on the platform, especially ones that I'd watch. So what I always share with people when they ask about the MFMG story is at some point too, I was doing some modeling work here and there. It was kind of a little bit for fun, artistic expression. A lot of times I would work with even like up and coming designers, that kind of thing. And I'd had some terrible makeup experiences in that process. So because of that, I started to get myself acquainted with like makeup artists and sort of the makeup world. So what was happening was all of those women that I'd been following and all that information about the makeup world that I'd been following on YouTube or even like magazines and stuff, I wasn't seeing that translated on Instagram. So at the time, I actually had like a fledging t-shirt company, who's the first company I started. At the time, I did have that company and I was just on Instagram a lot more because of that and I realized this gap and it frustrated me a little bit I was like this is crazy like I followed like for example someone like um, Beauty by JJ or Jackie and I was like these women are huge why aren't there you know pages just dedicated to all the amazing work they do so that's how that started so just to kind of I've said a lot of words just to kind of summarize I had an existing business that was like, you know, I sold one or two shirts here and there. Mm -hmm. I had my aunt actually buy a few shirts from my brand to sell in her local community. She lives in the States. So that was nice. But like, it was the kind of business where it was only family and friends that were supporting, right? It never Mm -hmm. took. So because of that business, I was spending a lot of time online. And I started that business because I was intrigued by the whole side hustle kind of movement. I was spending a lot of time online. I found like a gap that was very like very personal to me, very, it was like more of like a connected to a passion of mine. And I was like, this is ridiculous. I want to like amplify makeup artists of color. Like I, we need more people supporting them and all of that. And I just started it. Like I thought maybe I'll get 2000 followers here or there. First two, three weeks, it was like 10,000 people were following the page. Organically. Organically, which to me, but also I was literally posting every single day. I was kind of upset. I was a little bit obsessed with this, to be honest, because I'd seen that there were other makeup communities. Like there was, there's one till today, I think it's called Wake Up and Makeup or so. And these are just like, it basically is just a community where people are celebrating other makeup artists type of thing. And I couldn't see anyone dedicated specifically to black artists and black women so i was just very obsessed with this like trying to amplify these voices so i was posting maybe sometimes five posts a day i was personally consumed with this um passion of mine of like i want i want to build a community just supporting like black content creators black makeup artists that kind of thing so ten thousand people started following it within a month or two and for me it was still kind of a hobby and just this thing i was passionate about until the New York Times did an article about diversity in beauty. I believe this was like 2016 or so and included my community I started building in the page. And I think that's when the wheels started turning of, oh, this is a lot bigger than me and my passion and my interests. Like I have this fledging t-shirt company that isn't going anywhere. I can Mm -hmm. transform this community into a business. Mm -hmm. So that's how the idea for MFMG like really kind of started. So I had this modeling experience where I knew kind of the deficiencies in the makeup industry. I had personal experiences that were awful. So that kind of translated into the need to build this community. Then when New York Times kind of featured me, I was like, 
oh, wow, this could also be a business opportunity as well. And so how did you convert a struggling <laughs> shirt business to, <laughs> to a thriving makeup business? Yes. So it was a long, I wish it was a linear journey, but honestly, as a lot of other entrepreneurs who maybe have taken the bootstrap route to tell you, it was more all over the place. Like if, you know, when kids are drawing and they just go scatter, scatter all over the page, that's more how it was versus a straight line up because, um, I was very scared. Like I started to grow the subscriber base and grow an audience. At some point I got, so I knew quickly right away once I started building the community that Instagram was just a part of it. I knew that I had to build my own community, get an email list, that sort of thing uh, going. So that was one of the first things that I did was to start to get an, a subscriber base because I knew Instagram is a platform I don't own. Anything can happen with that platform at any time. So that was one of the first things I did was build the email list. Now, the email list group was giving me feedback saying, you know, what about makeup? Like, it's called Makeup for Melanie Girls. Like, you know, we sell, do you have some makeup we can buy? But I didn't know anything about the beauty space. So I didn't have the capital for something like that. I was very scared initially. But eventually, there was an incident that happened where Instagram actually took my page down. And I think that was when I knew I was like, okay, I have, I have to really turn this into a brand because Instagram is fickle. It can go at any time, but a, a true brand has long, longevity. The way that I turned, like, fully went through the process was I, of course, started researching, like, okay, my audience wants beauty products. How do we do that? The first step with MFMG when we build a community is my vision was actually more of a media company. So companies were actually paying me to, in order to connect with my audience. So this was around the period where blogs were, like, really big and were thing. And because I, didn't, I was too scared to do makeup right away, I thought, hey, you know, this is fine, we do that. But after the whole issue happened on Instagram, I just knew this has to be a brand. This has to be something tangible. This has to be something that can stand the test of time, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I started doing some research, quickly found out that you need very high minimum order quantities in order to launch a beauty business. That's why... Um, that's why like the big players like own several small businesses. That's why, um, I mean, now there are a lot, the market is more saturated, but that is why there, that's part of the um, barriers to entry mm -hmm. is the minimum of order, uh, order quantities that you need in order to even get started. So I quickly realized that that was going to be a huge challenge and being an indie brand, like a lot of labs didn't even want to talk to me. It was either, you know, make stuff from scratch or try to figure something out. Mm -hmm. And I was still working full time, right? So I knew I wouldn't have the bandwidth to make products from scratch, make sure they're like, you know, are able to stand the tests and be stable formulation. I knew mm -hmm. I had to work with the lab. So what I did then was like leverage my social media following to negotiate with, um, uh, contract manufacturers and labs and say, listen, you know, it's, it's an indie brand. Like, do you, you know, is there something we can't work out kind of thing? So that was the approach that I took. And I finally found, I mean, there were a lot of no's, a lot of unanswered emails, just kind of like, who's this joker? Like, you know? <laughs> 
Like what? Because they get like some of these um, contractors have huge, huge um, contracts with large brands. So they don't have mm-hmm. time for an indie brand that's trying to figure things out. So mm-hmm. yeah, I finally found someone willing to take a chance on me. And mm-hmm. that was basically how it started. In the first, I think I only ordered about 300 units of the first product and it sold out within a few weeks. And that's when I knew, okay, let's go. This is happening. <laughs> wow, that's impressive. This is the end of part one. We've actually got a lot more coming in part two. I really enjoyed this first part of my interview with Tommy Bilei. And as you can tell, I had a great time chatting with Tommy. And I'm so excited for part two where we discussed how Tommy overcame peer pressure as an international student what it takes to be an entrepreneur, and how to keep going when things get difficult, and many more. So stay tuned for part two coming in the next episode of the Fresh Start Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Fresh Start. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with someone you know and love please go ahead and subscribe on any platform you listen to your podcast. And also please take a moment to leave us a review because that would help us to reach more audience. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at freshstartorb. If you know any newcomer you think would be a good fit to interview for the podcast, we'd like to hear from you. Please go to www.thefreshstartorb.com to nominate someone. We appreciate you and remember... No matter how hard the past is, you can always begin again. Take care and have a great week.